is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. We are now in the Easter season. Welcome to Table Scraps, an internet exclusive edition of Table Talk Radio. I'm Evan Gigline, and uh, today we're talking about the reliability of the New Testament. You pick up your Bible, you read uh, in any of the Gospels or the Pauline Epistles. Can you really be certain, can you really be sure that this that you're reading is reliable? Uh, can you be sure that that the name on the book is the person who wrote it. Uh, how reliable are these documents anyway? Well, that's the topic of discussion for today. Our guest for this is Dr. James White. He's uh, the director of Alpha Omega Ministries, a Christian apologetics organization based in Phoenix, Arizona, and is the author of more than 20 books, a professor and accomplished debater. Welcome, Dr. White, to Table Talk Radio. It's good to be with you. All right, let's start then with historical reliability, because even if these documents have been uh, perfectly preserved. Um, how can we be sure that uh, they're reliable in the first place? So let's start with authorship. Can we be sure that the authors are who they say they are in writing these these books? Well, we have to define the, the word sure. Uh, there are many today who have established a, a modern definition of that term, and obviously since we don't have MP3 recorders, videotapes, and the like uh, in history, they say, well, there's just no way anyone could ever possibly know. That kind of uh, hyper-skepticism has become quite popular, uh, being popularized uh, uh, especially by atheist scholars uh, who just insist that uh, up until the modern period of time, we, we cannot know uh, anything about uh, the accuracy of the transmission of the text, the authorship of the text, whatever else it might be. Um, Classical scholarship, of course, uh, did not have that kind of uh, impediment, in essence, and, and recognized that instead of adopting the guilty until proven innocent uh, pattern of examining history, uh, that it would be a lot better and uh, more rational uh, to recognize that when we look at the issue of authorship, the question is, does this, does this work not only have historical evidence that it comes from that time period, but does it speak from that time period? Does it use the language of that time? Does it show a familiarity with the context in which it was found? Does it come from the worldview that we know was extant at that time from other sources? And when you examine all of that, you discover that the, the constant drumbeat uh, that you hear in a lot of uh, anti-Christian rhetoric and scholarship these days uh, about the New Testament documents being extremely late just simply doesn't hold up to, to scrutiny. Uh, the worldview from which they come is clearly that of first-century Palestine. Uh, the primary source of influence upon them is first-century Judaism. And all those people that are running around saying, well, you know, these were written much later, uh, if you really start digging into what they're, they're saying, they have come up with a theory. Uh, for example, I'll be debating Dr. Robert Price very soon, and he has a theory as to what the early church could and could not look like. And on the basis of his theory, uh, the, the early church could not have had any statements of, of uh, any creedal form whatsoever. That, that had to take at least 100 years to develop. So on that basis, he not only rejects that Paul wrote anything attributed to him, but the important text in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 to 11, he says, wasn't even written by whoever wrote Corinthians initially, to put it as far away from the time of Jesus as is humanly possible. Well, why do we have to accept a theory about what the early church looked like that has absolutely no documentary evidence? And yet, this is the kind of scholarship that is uh, rampant in universities, seminaries as well, uh, today. And when you really start digging through all the, all the layers, uh, you discover that there really is no reason whatsoever 
uh, to question the uh, early dates of these writings. And then we also need to be very careful, though. Uh, my, my daughter uh, was attacked by one of her uh, uh, philosophy professors uh, as a freshman in college, uh, challenged to find out who wrote the Gospels, and he told her to go Google it. Uh, with the level of the uh, scholarship that's being thrown around there, but uh, remember, the the uh, there are there are books in the New Testament and certainly more in the Old Testament that uh, have no authors attached to them as far as the actual text of the book is concerned. Authors have been uh, attributed over you know, tradition over time, but we need to be careful that we don't end up trying to defend things that we don't even need to be defending. Uh, as far as, uh, for example, Pauline authorship of Hebrews or something like that. You may come to the conclusion that he wrote it, uh, but uh, the book itself doesn't say that. So we need to be careful uh, that we don't get caught up defending things we don't need to be defending. To define what you mean by early, let's, let's just for a second focus on the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. When you say that they were written early, uh, what do you mean? What kind of time periods are we talking about? Well... Uh, generally, uh, in, in New Testament scholarship today, you, you will see a range of dates for the writing of the Gospels from uh, as early as uh, 40, and again, it depends on how you, uh, also what order you think they're written in. We don't know what order the Gospels were written in. There are people who will tell you they think they know, but the, the fact of the matter is we just do not know. Uh, the, the Gospels themselves don't tell us that. Uh, the majority today, and this was not the viewpoint down to church history, but the majority today think Mark was the first one written, and then Matthew and Luke come after that, and then John's the last one written. That's popular theory. Um, I don't think there's any way of proving it one way or the other. The arguments are generally based upon, well, Matthew and Mark, uh, or Matthew and Luke use Mark, and they use this other source, and all the rest of this stuff. It's very complicated for most people to follow. But uh, the reality is uh, that when we talk about an early writing for these, uh, a lot of scholars want to put these post-70 A.D. Uh, 70 is a nice round number. It's also when Jerusalem was destroyed. Uh, the problem is uh, that the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70 causes all sorts of problems. Um, the very idea that that massive event takes place and then doesn't get mentioned as a fundamental element of the New Testament revelation has led a lot of people to believe that all of the New Testament books, including John, interestingly enough, even though many people put that in the 90s, um, were written prior to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. I think it's, there's no question in my mind uh, that certainly uh, Hebrews was written that early. I believe Mark was written that early, and I believe uh, Matthew and Luke were written that early. John, maybe after that time period, uh, we're, just, we're just not certain. Uh, but uh, early would be within the, the 40 to 60 uh, range of, of dates, within uh, 10 to 30 years of the events of uh, the Gospels themselves. That's, that's the early dating. And then you have more radical scholars that, that try to make these almost second century uh, documents. And what we need to realize is in the 1880s, if you had gone to school in Germany, you would have been taught that it was the conclusion of the highest forms of scholarship. But the Gospel of John was written about 175 A.D. Uh, but then you go and find manuscripts like, uh, like uh, the little papyri fragment P52, which is from the Gospel of John, that dates to as early as the 90s. Uh, and to, most people date around 125. That sort of messes up with your, your theory just a little bit. Uh, I've always appreciated the Lord's sense of humor with that one. But uh, so... What scholarship says has changed a lot over the years. 
and uh, you really need to dig into uh, the, real, the real arguments and sort of demythologize scholarship to see why they're saying many things they do. How do you respond to someone who says, hey, look, you know, even at your most you know, conservative guess, uh, 30 years is a long time to, to forget the accounts that the, the eyewitnesses saw. Uh, how do you respond? You know, 30 years, 40 years is a long time. Well, it's certainly not a long time uh, in that day in the sense that you had a, a culture that was much more orally oriented. We, I'm seeing this myself in, in the next generations. I'm old enough now to see this. Uh, it is amazing the, the degradation of the uh, attention span on the part of young people today in comparison to even my generation. Uh, I didn't grow up. Uh, I remember when Pong came out, okay? I mean, that's how old I am. So uh, I didn't grow up with the, with the uh, entertainment uh, culture and video games and things like that. Uh, I, I actually spent time as a young person memorizing scripture, an odd, odd thing for people to do these days. But um, this is a completely different context. We, we, even my generation, was very much a written generation. There was television, and there was also the reading of books. Well, uh, books were not nearly as generally available uh, in that culture as now, and so oral teaching and memorization is very, very common. But even 30, 40 years, uh, as has been pointed out in an excellent book uh, by Richard Balcom called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, the eyewitnesses continued to have an extremely important point uh, a part, I'm sorry, in the early church itself. And so the the recollection of Jesus' words and deeds, the, of course, Paul's uh, letters were, were written themselves, so this is only relevant to the issue of the Gospels. The eyewitnesses continued in the church, and so if someone had come along and, and attempted to fundamentally alter uh, the, the message, those, those eyewitnesses were still highly uh, esteemed within the church itself, and they would go from church to church telling the same stories over and over again. Uh, so the idea that those could be changed or altered in a, any radical way in a, such a short period of time uh, ignores the context itself. Okay, so we, uh, we have the, the books of the Bible recorded um, and then copied, which we'll talk about in a second. But over time, uh, there creeps up what is often called Gnostic texts, fake Gospels, uh, explain to us how the church went about to, de- to determine which of these books will, is actually the Bible, God's holy word, and which are fakes. Well, you, you have the rise of Gnosticism uh, at the end of the first century, the beginning of the second century, down in Egypt especially, uh, but in, in other places in, in Asia Minor as well. And, and this is a completely different kind of religion. It, it is a religion based upon a personal enlightenment, uh, the obtaining of secret knowledge so that the uh, uh, you can uh, escape uh, the physical body, and, and it's a very dualistic system, very, very different than the uh, biblical worldview itself. And Gnosticism was sort of like the Plato of ancient religions. So if you remember Plato, if you ever dropped it in the sand or in the grass or something, you'd pick up anything that it touched. And that's, uh, that's pretty much how Gnosticism was. And so since Christianity was, was growing so rapidly, they needed to find some way to put Jesus into this system, and so they did. And as a result, produced literature uh, in the 2nd and 3rd centuries, which are called the Gnostic Gospels, and these uh, do not come from uh, the area around uh, Palestine, Jerusalem, in any way, shape, or form. They, they are, are completely contradictory to the Old Testament revelation. They do not speak of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in any meaningful sense at all. 
And so as such, uh, they, they were never viewed uh, by Orthodox Christians, anybody who, who held both the Old and New Testaments, uh, as, as having any kind of, of meaning to them other than just simply heretical texts. Uh, much of what we read in the early church writers are polemical writings against uh, these very books and this very kind of movement. even see some of that in the New Testament itself, in 1 John uh, and in Paul's uh, Epistle to the Colossians. And so it wasn't that those books were ever, you know, a lot of people have the idea that there were some a bunch of old guys sitting around in a, in a smoke-filled room voting on Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, uh, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Mary, the Gospel of Peter, etc., etc. That, that was never the case. Um, uh, there, there was never any council sat down and said, well, here's, here's the books of the Bible. Uh, in fact, uh, the, the Old Testament canon came to the New Testament church from the people of God. And uh, the, the Protestant canon of the Old Testament is, is simply the, the canon of the, the ancient people of God to whom the oracles of God have been committed, according to Romans chapter 3. And the New Testament canon, uh, then the first time that we have a listing of all of it in exact order as far as the, as the, uh, the, the letters that we have today, the uh, books we have today, is in Athanasius's 39th festival letter in 367, as I recall. Um, we have one earlier example of that called the Muratorian Fragment uh, from around the year 180 or so, uh, which is about 90 to 95% of the New Testament. But since the New Testament was written differently, that is, it was written by multiple authors in multiple places at multiple times uh, to multiple uh, audiences, um, there was a time period where it, it had to be collected. And you didn't have fax machines back then. There wasn't any Twitter or anything like that. So... Uh, it, it took time for, if, if a book had been, say, had been written in the Western Empire, it would take time for it to become well-known and used in the Eastern part of the Empire, or vice versa. And so some of those early lists uh, contain some things, don't contain anything. But then there was also discernment on the part of the early Church, thankfully. I mean, the book of Revelation really had to fight for acceptance in the canon, and I'm glad for that. I mean, books that talk about seven-headed monsters really should be examined fairly closely uh, before being brought into the canon of Scripture, and uh, uh, the book of Revelation did have to fight in that way, which, interestingly enough, then also impacts the fact that that is the one book in the New Testament we have the fewest manuscripts of, uh, was the book of Revelation, because it, it did have to fight for acceptance uh, over, uh, over a period of time. And so it wasn't uh, a group determining which books got in. Uh, it was used by the people of God over the entire known world at the time. Uh, that uh, ended up being the primary factor in that, just as it had been in the Old Testament as well. Uh, it followed the very same time frame, took about 200 years after the end of Revelation, uh, Revelation itself, not the book of Revelation, after the end of Revelation for the Old Testament scriptures to be put up in, as, as holy books in the temple, and it took about 200 years to the Uratorian fragment as well. So uh, similar time frames for both. Okay, now talk to us about the preservation of these books. Uh, we're told by some that that copyists uh, ha- have made these uh, copyist errors, uh, whether in, in spelling or um, you know, words sounding the same, being spelled different ways. And through all these, these uh, copyist errors, we're told by some that, well, we really don't know then what the original copy said. Right. Uh, the, the, the best example of that today is Bart Ehrman, uh, his, his books, Misquoting Jesus and Jesus Interrupted and, and uh, other works that he's put out, popularizes the idea that we really cannot know what was originally written because textual variation exists in the handwritten manuscripts. Of course, 
Uh, a couple things to, to keep in mind. Uh, first of all, no work of antiquity whatsoever uh, that is passed down by handwritten copies uh, comes down to us without textual variation. It doesn't matter what it is. The only way you could have a text from the ancient world that would not be changed is if you carved it into a mountainside someplace uh, and then built a big old wall so no one could ever get in there to mess with it, uh, which is not exactly a good way to create a text that is meant to create a people of God that uh, extends beyond just the borders of that mountain. And so anything's going to have textual variation within it. Uh, that includes such works as the Quran itself, which likewise uh, does contain textual variation in, in, as well, because it was transmitted for a period of time of its history uh, in a handwritten fashion. And uh, anyone who sits down and, and uh, copies something in a handwritten fashion uh, is going to make errors, errors of mind, errors of sight. Uh, sometimes you can't read what the other guy wrote, uh, whatever else it might be. Uh, this is not a cut-and-paste situation. They did not have photocopiers until 1949. Um, and so the question becomes, how broad and robust is your manuscript tradition, which would allow you to uh, sift out any type of human error in the transmission itself? And uh, I, have a, I have a clip uh, from my debate with Bart Ehrman uh, in January of 2009, uh, where he, he very openly says that the New Testament is the earliest and most widely attested uh, text of antiquity that we possess. Uh, if you look at any other work, Suetonius, Pliny, any of the Greek historians that were written around the same time as the New Testament, uh, you will discover that uh, the average time period between the first copies we have in history and when they actually wrote is between 500 and 900 years. Between 5 and 900 years. So when Suetonius writes, you know, the first copies we have are from between 5 and 900 years after he writes. In the New Testament, uh, and you normally only have maybe six to a dozen uh, manuscripts from which to work. That's the entire manuscript tradition of, uh, of some of those particular uh, books. In, con in contrast to that, uh, we have uh, at least 12 papyri fragments, not entire New Testament, but papyri fragments, uh, that come from the second century, uh, which puts us within 100 years of the time of the writing of the New Testament. Uh, comprising about 40% of the New Testament books. Uh, no work of antiquity even comes close to that. Uh, within the first 300 years, we, of course, we have the entirety of, of the New Testament, all of it in, in complete form, uh, in various manuscripts that are available to us. And we have about 5,760 approximately handwritten Greek manuscripts. You add in the Latin manuscripts, Coptic, Sahidic, other translations that are made in the early time period and we're between 15 and 20,000 uh, manuscripts uh, in various languages in regards to the text of the New Testament. So we have this massive amount of information, um, and hence a very early and very broad manuscript tradition upon which to filter out the textual variations that inevitably do take place uh, when you have copyists uh, who are copying. And obviously in the first 200 years of the transmission of the text in the New Testament, you have another major, important, majorly important issue, and that is the persecution of the church. Uh, Christianity is a religio illicita, uh, an illegal religion under the Roman Empire, and to even possess the Christian scriptures at many times during that time period uh, could cost you your life. And so uh, whenever I see those early uh, manuscript, papyri manuscripts, to come from that time period, I'm, I'm always touched by that when I think about the fact that here was someone who probably risked their lives 
to make this copy of, uh, of God's Word. Uh, but what that also meant is that uh, there, were, there were major portions of time when you couldn't go down to lo- the local scriptorium, and even if you had the money to do so, Christians rarely did. They were generally of the, of the lower classes. But uh, if you went down to the local scriptorium, you, you couldn't have a professional make those copies. And so you had businessmen and soldiers and people who were literate, obviously, on some level, uh, making these copies, and when you look at the papyri, you can see uh, that they were made by people who had limited um, training in that particular work, and, and hence they would make mistakes. And we happen to know that thousands of manuscripts of, of the scriptures, the Christian scriptures, were destroyed during this time period uh, by the Roman by the Roman Empire because they knew that Christianity was a was a religion of the book. And so when you when you put all of that together. Uh, what the New Testament uh, textual critical scholar has is an embarrassment of, of riches. Uh, despite the best efforts of, of the Roman Empire, uh, we have manuscripts that come from all over the place, from a wide variety of sources, and that's extremely healthy. That is a good thing, uh, because that allows us then to examine textual variation and to be able to reconstruct the original text based upon this tremendous manuscript tradition that we have, if we only had one text, and this is what a lot of people want, they want to have only one text. They want to sort of have what the Muslims have. Uh, well, Uthman created one text, and we'd uh, be nice to have for us to have this one text. But like, uh, uh, you know, in, in our language, we want to have this one translation, whatever it might be. The problem with that is you have to trust, you have to believe that that one manuscript uh, is the one preserved manuscript, and the people who produced it were, in essence, themselves inspired in the choices that they made in regards to the manuscripts that existed before them. And that means you have to trust them implicitly. We don't have that with the New Testament. There is never any time when any one man, group of men, the Pope, or anybody else uh, had the power or ability to gather up all New Testament manuscripts, make wholesale changes, insert the deity of Christ, take out reincarnation, whatever else it, whatever else it might be that people argue about. Uh, that, that type of situation never existed. Uh, in the history of the New Testament whatsoever, since it was written to multiple places, to multiple audiences at multiple times. Uh, it was never subject to that kind of control, and that is the greatest reason uh, we can say that we know what Paul wrote to the Romans, the Galatians, or anybody else, and that there hasn't been this kind of editing, uh, because of the very nature of the, the original writings themselves. You mentioned uh, Bart Ehrman, who... Um, appeared on a 2006 broadcast of Issues Etc. Todd Wilkin, uh, a show that is a friend of Table Talk Radio, and I think you appear as a guest on that uh, on that show uh, from time to time. Um, yeah. I, w- I want to play an exchange with uh, Bart Ehrman and Todd Wilkin and get your response if you if you wouldn't mind. Sure. Uh, the way to imagine early Christianity is that there were a large number of groups who were debating a large number of theological issues, and one of these groups ended up being victorious. This group that ended up becoming victorious is the group that wrote the creeds that we still have today, and they're the ones that decided which books would be included in the New Testament. So naturally, the books in the New Testament would coincide fairly closely with the views uh, adopted in these creeds. But not correspond closely with any objective truth of what the scriptures really ought to be saying or originally said. I don't know what you mean by objective truth. Well, uh, something outside just someone's subjective judgment of what is true or not. Uh, I'm sorry. I, I, I don't use this kind of language, and so I don't understand. I, I mean, if, if there was something that was objectively true, the fact is we're not objects. We're subjects. And so there, there's no 
I mean, I... <laughs> oh, okay, now this becomes very clear. Okay, so uh, we've stumbled here a couple times in our questions when I've talked about objective or, or subjective. So uh, is it a fair characterization of your kind of one of your presuppositions that... Um, that there is no objective truth, or that objective truth, if it exists, cannot be known? I think that the differentiation between objectivity and subjectivity is a false differentiation. That It's not that I don't think there's such a thing as objectivity. I don't think there's a, such a thing as subjectivity. I mean, I, don't, I think that that very dichotomy didn't exist in the ancient world, for example, that until the Enlightenment you didn't have people talking in those terms. So you're using a kind of a modern post-Enlightenment way of understanding truth that I think would have been a mystery to most of the people who wrote the Bible. Dr. White, your response? Well, a number of things. Uh, first of all, the first comment, and of course I did hear that program, and uh, it was very uh, helpful in my preparation for my, my debate with, uh, with Dr. Ehrman, but uh, the, the first thing is uh, Dr. Ehrman has written a number of books uh, wherein he publishes the Gnostic texts and the, the texts of various and sundry groups. And hence, there is, during this time period in our lives, uh, a great emphasis upon these, these groups, uh, so that Dr. Ehrman's whole argument is that what we believe was just simply one of many, many, many different voices in the early church. Uh, the reality is that these groups were probably never very large themselves, and uh, the idea that they should be given equal treatment, uh, especially given their utter disconnection from the Old Testament tradition and the beliefs of the Old Testament people is one of the main things that needs to be challenged about uh, Dr. Ehrman's understanding of these things. But then the exchange about subjective and objective truth uh, was very interesting. Um, I'm not sure exactly how genuine uh, Bart was being at that point. I've listened to so many hours of his teaching, lecturing, and debating that I can tell by the tone of his voice when he's not overly happy with someone that he's uh, being interviewed by and he already wasn't overly happy at that point. Uh, so I'm not sure if he was really being genuine and saying, why well, I, I don't think they would have understood this, because clearly they did. I, I mean, certainly the, the Gnostics didn't have as sound an epistemology as, as New Testament writers did, but even then, the idea of this is true and that's false was not a foreign enlightenment concept to these individuals at all. Uh, they, they well knew uh, that there was truth and error and that uh, there was uh, truth that that existed objectively outside of my subjective experience of it, uh, even if their religions uh, took them beyond that. Uh, so, uh, you know, but I'm not sure that, that was overly relevant to the actual question itself, because the idea was, uh, do, can these texts witness to something that is objectively true? And uh, Dr. Ehrman, as uh, he describes himself as a happy agnostic, uh, really may be in a difficult position to defend his epistemology, but I don't think that that's his area either. Um, his his area, when I debated him, I had his doctoral dissertation sitting on my desk, his area of specialty is in the identification of the early Alexandrian uh, uh, variant readings uh, in origin and other early Egyptian writers. That's what he's trained in. That's what his, his dissertation was in. Now, he's branched off since then, and uh, one of his books, God's Problem, where he goes out the problem of evil, uh, was especially uh, problematic along those lines um, in, in really not showing a, uh, a real uh, good understanding of things. Okay, uh, define some of these terms for our listeners. Uh, we have the Alexandrian and Byzantine texts. Uh, what, what are we referring to when you use those words? Well, uh, scholars have identified 
two major families and then some smaller families, well, three major families, really. Um, and, and when we talk about a family, we're talking about texts that are related uh, to one another uh, by containing similar readings. Um, for example, uh, one of the most famous of the uh, variations in the New Testament, the lo- really longest variation in the New Testament, two longest variations, John 7, 53 through 8, 11, and the longer ending of Mark, uh, when you look at what manuscripts contain that section in John 7, 53 through 8, 11, and which ones do not, that helps you to identify certain kinds of families. Uh, now, given the names, uh, generally, and this isn't a, a, a fast rule, but generally, uh, the Byzantine manuscripts are traced to the area around, obviously, Byzantium, ancient Istanbul, uh, Constantinople. Um, and the Alexandrian manuscripts from the area around Egypt. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that, that they were all written in that particular area or necessarily uh, are, are local text. The Byzantine manuscripts are by far the majority because of the fact that uh, of, of, of well, this history itself, uh, by the third century, uh, people began to uh, primarily use Latin in the Western Church. And then you have a major world event taking place in between 632 and 732 uh, in the rise of Islam. Muhammad dies in 632, and uh, Islam expands uh, all through the Middle East, uh, up toward the, the very borders of Constantinople, Asia Minor, uh, across Africa, across the Straits of Gibraltar, into Spain and Portugal. And that expansion is not stopped until 732 at the Battle of Tours. That doesn't do a lot. Uh, for the production of Greek manuscripts in those particular areas or the Christian church in those particular areas. And so many areas that have continued using Greek uh, are no longer producing manuscripts after the, uh, the Muslim invasion. So the one area that continues to produce Greek manuscripts uh, all the way up until the fall of Constantinople in 1453 is the area around Byzantium, and, and hence uh, the majority of manuscripts that we have uh, come from uh, that particular family, that, that particular uh, set of readings that had become settled in that particular area. What is meant by when people hear about the Texas Receptus? What does that mean? The Texas Receptus is a Latin phrase which means the received text, and it originated in 1633. The Elsevier brothers were trying to sell. Uh, it was an advertising blurb, literally. They, they used to advertise in Latin back then. gives you an idea of how far we've come. Um, and I'm not sure we've come very far uh, as far as advancement goes, uh, but they're trying to sell uh, their edition of the Greek New Testament, which was basically a, a, uh, a reprinting of the text that had come through Desiderius Erasmus, the Greek Dutch humanist scholar, uh, the Dutch humanist scholar to say Greek, uh, his Greek New Testament, uh, and then the 1555 Stephanus and the 1598 Beza. You take all those together, and that's basically what underlies the King James New Testament. In 1633, uh, they called it the received text, and that name has sort of stuck. Uh, the problem is that's not the majority text. So the majority text is the text you, you create by looking at all the manuscripts. Let's say you have a 1,000 manuscripts of Mark, and uh, you have a variant reading in, in a verse, and you, you count the number of manuscripts, and seven of them, 700 of them read one way, and 300 read the other way. You just simply take the majority, 700. And that's the reading, whether that's the earliest reading, whether that comes from, you know, 1000 A.D. or 100 A.D., it doesn't matter. You just go with the majority. Well, if you create what's called the majority text, uh, that differs in about 1,800 places from the Textus Receptus, the TR. 
the tr has readings in it that, that are not to be found in any greek manuscript in the world uh, because when Erasmus began his work on his Greek New Testament, there were some places that he inserted material from the Latin Vulgate, and then, for example, at the end of the book of Revelation, his printer was putting him under a lot of pressure to finish, and so he uh, couldn't find a Greek manuscript of the book of Revelation. He actually had to use a commentary on Revelation, and the last page had fallen off. And so his printer was putting him under, under so much pressure that he translated from the Latin Vulgate into Greek, and that's what was published, and that's still what is published in the TR to this day, and it's still what underlies the, the uh, Greek of the King James Version, and the last six verses of the Book of Revelation. Uh, no Greek manuscript that we found, and of course we found lots of Greek manuscripts that have the end of Revelation in it, uh, read exactly as that. He didn't do a bad job, but uh, still, there's a bunch of words and word order and stuff that no one had ever seen till then, uh, and yet that's, uh, that's kept in the, in the Textus Receptus. And so it's a little bit scary when I encounter folks who elevate the TR uh, to the point where this, this becomes the standard that everything else is to be judged by, because it just ignores its own history. Uh, even its, its own original author, uh, in death Darius Erasmus, uh, said that it was precipitated rather than edited, uh, which uh, should, should cause us uh, some, <laughs> some humor uh, when, when people try to make up the standard of all things. So when a, uh, a seminary-trained pastor is sitting in his office uh, preparing for Bible study or a sermon, and he holds in his hand uh, maybe the, the 27th edition of the Nestle Alon, and he's reading along, finds a variant in the text, and goes down to the apparatus, uh, tell us what kind of questions he's asking to try and determine what the original reading probably said. Well, uh, unfortunately, the vast majority of pastors aren't doing that. Uh, <laughs> I, I wish that that, that that was what was being done. Um, I certainly, uh, when, when I preach, uh, attempt to preach from the Greek text directly without an English text, but uh, the, the, the pastor who really doesn't want to create confusion uh, on the part of his, his flock must need to take into consideration the fact that his people do have a number of different translations out there, and so he should check those translations. Um, unfortunately, uh, the vast majority of pastors... Uh, even if they're forced to take Greek, if you take Greek in seminary, and I've taught Greek in seminary many times, uh, you have such little time to do it that, unfortunately, they're normally taught to hate Greek, not to actually read Greek. Uh, and so, as, as a result, um, I, I would probably say maybe 2%, uh, up to maybe as most 5% of sound evangelical pastors are looking at any critical edition at all in the preparation of a sermon. And um, I certainly attempt to do that. Uh, I've been preaching through Hebrews. Uh, I took the time to explain some of the more important variants uh, that are uh, uh, to be found, like in Hebrews 2.9, one of uh, uh, Bart Ehrman's favorite variants, things like that. But that's pretty unusual. Uh, let's, let's be honest about it. Uh, it. It needs to become more usual because if we don't talk about it within the context of faith, uh, people will encounter it within the context of unbelief. And that's not where you want people encountering the facts concerning the existence of textual variation and things like that, because it'll normally be included with a, a spin and, and other attacks upon the faith. Well, as, as rare as it may be, though, uh, how could one then, by using the apparatus and, and, and seeing the, the different texts, the papyrus or whatever codec, uh, codex be listed there, uh, what process, what questions are asked to determine uh, what might be uh, a, a reliable re reading of the text? Well, in general, uh, 
you, you have to adopt a particular set of, of standards. Um, each translation committee will adopt a set of standards, and, and generally there's, there's two areas that you look at. You look at the external attestation, that is, what manuscripts, how old, how many, uh, which manuscripts are we talking about, and then the internal probabilities, uh, that is, um, is it very probable that this particular reading arose because of a misreading of the text because of this. For example, um, one of the most common uh, scribal errors in the New Testament is called homoiteluton, uh, similar endings. And so if you can see in a text, such as in 1 John 3.1, where the modern translations have the phrase, and such we are, talking about our adoption of sons, but the King James and New King James, the text of Shepherds, do not have that phrase. When you look at it, you see that uh, the, the Greek contains a, uh, a place where someone could mistake similar endings. Just as like you and I, when we are writing, we're copying something out, and we type ing or tion or es or any of these common grammatical endings, our eyes go back to what we're copying, and we find the same ending, except it's a few words down the line, or it's on the line immediately below, and we just start from there. We end up deleting a whole section in the process without meaning to. It's not that we we're, we don't agree with what's being said, it's just that it's a, it's a standard error of sight. Well, there's just such an error of sight at First John chapter 3. Thankfully, we have so many manuscripts that we can identify what the original text was, but that's, uh, that's what would be considered an internal uh, probability, uh, looking at the text and going, well, this is how a, a scribe could have made that kind of, kind of mistake. Generally, you have to balance the internal versus the external. And uh, I'm one of those folks who thinks the, the external is extremely important. I sort of like facts. <laughs> Having actual manuscripts to read a certain way is, is sort of a good thing. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, today, a lot of the more liberal scholars uh, are willing to just follow any flight of fancy and say, well, you know, I think this scribe may have been thinking about this, if you can do mind reading from a long distance away uh, over thousands of years and figure anything out that's of, of a whole lot of use. And so uh, that individual looking at those uh, variations will, will have to come to the conclusion, does it impact the meaning of the text? And if it does, do I need to uh, raise the issue and explain the issue? And, uh, of course, again, that's, that's pretty rare because uh, there are a lot of folks that, that would uh, bristle at, at the very idea of uh, raising such issues. And, but once you've trained your people to become accustomed to it and to hear what you're saying, it, it's actually a great thing. But... Uh, again, that's, that's pretty rare. And lastly, Dr. White, uh, with all things considered, historical considerations, uh, copious variances and the like, uh, is the New Testament a reliable historical text? Well, let's put it this way. If the New Testament isn't, then we don't know anything that happened prior to 1949 uh, when the photocopier was invented. Um, there is no work of antiquity that has come down to us. Uh, with the level of purity and the level of accuracy and the level of documentation in the New Testament. And when you encounter people who adopt a kind of radical skepticism like Bart Ehrman in saying, well, we just don't know, then if they're going to be consistent, they have to say, we don't know anything about anything that's happened in the past until at least, let's say, uh, earlier, uh, well, middle of last century or something like that, where you still have people who are alive uh, that could at least tell you something about what took place at that time. Um, in essence, what these folks are doing is saying God could not have spoken in the past. He could not have uh, provided us and, and preserved for us any type of written revelation whatsoever. 
Uh, as long as you don't adopt those types of radical skepticism, then there is no question that the New Testament uh, gives the, the greatest vindication of the accuracy of its transmission over time. The way it was originally written is, is from my perspective, absolutely designed uh, to give to us uh, the very foundation upon which we can refute the accusations of the Muslims or the New Agers or anybody else who says, well, uh, you, you put the deity of Christ in, or you put the Holy Spirit in, you put you took reincarnation out, like Shirley MacLaine was running around a number of years ago saying, things like that. Uh, that is absolutely positively impossible uh, on the basis of the information we have available to us today. Those things could not have happened. Uh, now, the price to have that certainty is a necessity of examining uh, approximately 1% of the text uh, in regards to serious uh, textual variation. But even when we say that, one of those variants is the original reading. It's, it's like Rob Bowman put it once. It's like having a 1,000-piece jigsaw puzzle and having 1,010 pieces. It's not that we've lost anything. It's not that we have only 900 pieces left. All the originals are there. The issue is the identification of those 10 extra pieces. And uh, that's the situation we have with the, uh, with the New Testament as well. You've been listening to Table Scraps, the Internet version of Table Talk Radio, and our guest for this uh, past half hour has been Dr. James White, Director of Alpha Omega Ministries, a Christian apologetics organization based out of Phoenix, Arizona. He's the author of more, more than 20 books, including The King James Only Controversy and The God Who Justifies, a professor and accomplished debater. Thank you, Dr. White, for joining us for Table Scraps. It's been great to be with you.